Hello and welcome to the latest Fraser of Allender podcast. My name is Mary Spowage. I'm the Deputy Director of the Institute. Um, and today we're going to be talking about, about devolved fiscal issues, the way that the budgets are set by the devolved governments and what the impact of the current crisis has been on those budgets and the potential flexibilities that exist in the fiscal frameworks that underpin the devolution of powers. I'm delighted to say I'm joined today by my colleague David Iser, who heads up fiscal analysis at the Institute. And I'm also joined by Dr. Ed Poole, who's a senior lecturer at Cardiff University's Wales Governance Centre. Gitto Ifan, who's a research associate at the Wales Fiscal Analysis part of the Wales Governance Centre. And David Phillips, who's an associate director at the Institute for Fiscal Studies. So welcome all. Um, and just coming to um, Ed first, if that's all right. Um, obviously, the crisis that we're currently going through sort of kicked off well after um, the, the budget for the Welsh um, Parliament was set and passed. So how is the outlook for the, the, the budget for Wales evolved since then? And what is the impact of the crisis uh, what has the impact of the crisis been on that budget? Oh, Diolch, Mary, thanks a lot. And, and thanks for inviting us on the podcast today. I mean, this has been absolutely unprecedented, as we know, um, not only from the health perspective in the pandemic, but also the, the scale of the additional funding streams that have been made available. And also uh, 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 the, 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 the devolved governments have also found from their own resources additional monies to try and mitigate this crisis. The, uh, it's only in a couple of months, as you know, since the, the Scottish and Welsh budgets, but the, the, this week in Wales, there's going to be a supplementary budget. Normally, these are just, uh, you know, just mopping up uh, here and there. But this is going to be an enormous uh, change to a budget that was just a couple of months ago sealed. Um, so far, these, there's been more than 2 billion, about 2.2 billion in business rates reliefs um, and grants that have come from consequentials from decisions um, in London, there's about another half billion in terms of resources that have been reprioritized from within the Welsh Government budget. So we're looking at about a 15% increase uh, from the previous fiscal year. And to put that in some uh, perspective, that type of increase would have been expected by 2023-24, sorry, 2022-23, if the 2019 Labour manifesto had been um, uh, been introduced. So we're already at 2020-21 at levels that were considered beyond the pale in terms of increased spending uh, in, in several years down the line. So this is, um, you know, truly historic. I know we overuse that word, but in terms of the fiscal response at the devolved level, we've not seen anything like this before. Yeah, and just going to Gitto as well, I mean, in terms of the risks that the budget has been exposed to, um, how has that sort of changed since the budget was set and how is that changing um, what's going to happen next in terms of setting the supplementary budget? I guess there's been a massive increase in the, in the demand on the, on the health and social care um, sector, obviously with the, with the immediate uh, health crisis um, and the care crisis. So that, I think that part of the budget will grow by around half a billion pounds from the final budget allocation. Um, and then, of course, you've got the the business support through the business rate system. And then I think one of the ways in which the Welsh Government policy responses differed is that it is found about half a billion pounds for its economic crisis fund, um, which I think primarily comes from reprioritised and, and repurposed funding from, from within its own budget and EU funding as well. Um, so I think... So they announced the initial sort of fiscal response and it amounted to about £2.4 billion um, back at the end of March. Since then, the UK government has announced a further, I think, around £588 million on top of that. So I think the extent of the fiscal response may increase, well, increase um, tomorrow with the uh, supplementary budget. So there's definitely scope to go further. Um, some areas that have sort of would probably want more funding to be announced so probably local government so they're probably finding that their additional spending pressures have been met but a sort of a, a, a big hit to them is, is on their on their income side so their loss of income from sales fees and charges 
um, which I think maybe the Welsh Government might um, commit to, to, to reimbursing them on that for that lost income tomorrow. Thanks for that. And yeah, the, the different um, types of policy response have been really interesting, I think, from some of the devolved governments. And perhaps we can come back to speak about that in a bit more detail in a bit. But just turning to David Iser now, in terms of the, the Scottish budget, I guess the same question about how the outlook has kind of evolved and what additional risks the budget's now um, exposed to. Well, it's a, it's a similar story as in Wales in terms of um, there's been, since the um, Scottish budget was introduced on the 6th of February, um, there's been a big increase in the resources flowing from Westminster. That's around about 3.6 billion um, of additional funding that's flowed from Westminster as a result of UK government policy decisions that apply in England. Um, we, can, we can talk about um, how that's been allocated in Scotland, I mean, it's, it's broadly followed a similar sort of pattern uh, as, as, um, as the UK government has, has implemented in England. So there's that side of the story. And, and similar to in Wales, there'll be a, um, a spring budget revision later this week where we'll find out more, um, not just about where this additional funding has gone. We kind of know broadly where, well, we know in quite a lot of detail where that 3.6 billion has gone. What we up until now haven't seen much about is the extent to which the Scottish government has, has sort of, is going to change some of the spending plans that it set out in February, uh, reprioritize those as a result of the COVID-19 crisis. But we, we should find out more about that later this week. That's the spending side of things. Then, of course, on the tax side of things, um, the Scottish budget is, is quite heavily um, uh, determined now by forecasts of devolved income tax revenues and, to a lesser extent, land and buildings transactions tax revenues. And clearly, the forecasts that have been made in, in February are, you know, uh, uh, just uh, you know, effectively um, um, completely out of date now and um, we know that revenues are going to come in much lower than was forecast uh, now actually the Scottish budget is is insulated against a large part of that risk because the UK government bears the risk um, of UK uh, wide falls in revenues the Scottish government the Scottish budget only bears the risk of, of differential falls in revenues uh, relative to the rest of the UK. But nonetheless, that is still quite a large risk. It was always a risk that the budget faced. Um, but I guess what, what, what this crisis does is it, it makes the potential scale of those forecast errors larger, the uncertainty around those, the, those more significant. Um, but it, it's quite easy to imagine that the Scottish Government might uh, have to um, might be might be faced with forecast error adjustments um, of a couple of hundred million this year and uh, more in subsequent years, um, because actually on on the income tax side of things, the risk to the budget this year is entirely borne by the UK uh, government, but the Scottish the Scottish government bears the risk of of um, forecast error on income tax uh, with a bit of a delay. Yes, absolutely. Um, so just turning to um, David Phillips now, um, we've heard from Ed Gitto and David a lot about how the budgets have evolved since the crisis has started, the additional risks, I suppose, that the budgets are exposed to. So what extent do you think that this crisis has sort of changed perspectives about the strengths and limitations of the, the different fiscal frameworks that exist, that exist and the balance of risks? Um, where the risk sits between the two sets of governments um, or do you think it's sort of just emphasised existing concerns that people had about, about the operation of the fiscal framework and, and the risks that different budgets were exposed to? I think it really has been something which has uh, reinforced existing um, views on the, the sort of positives of the fiscal framework and the negatives or the potential risks of the fiscal framework so like David Iser was, was just saying there, um, one of the sort of uh, aspects of the fiscal framework that could be seen as beneficial at a time like this is, is the way that the UK government sort of bears the risk of common shocks. So the, the extent to which this will be a shock that affects the whole of the UK 
the way the fiscal frameworks work through the sort of what's called the block grant adjustments, the, the sort of adjustments made to the funding to account for the tax devolution uh, and, and, and the welfare devolution, the way those adjustments work means that um, the UK will, will bear the cost of any, any shock that hits the country as a whole, and the devolved governments bear the costs of any you know, additional or bigger impacts in their countries will actually gain if the, the impacts are smaller. I think, I think that will be shown in this crisis to be something which does offer significant protection to the devolved governments, to their, to their budgets. Um, but I think at the same time, other elements of the fiscal framework will be seen to be you know, potentially somewhat lacking. Um, so one of the issues is that the devolved governments can only borrow for uh, very specific purposes up to uh, set predefined limits. And borrowing to fund day-to-day -day spending is only allowed if taxes come in under forecast, um, or in the case of Scotland, if what's called a Scotland-specific economic shock is taking place uh, or is expected. Uh, the Scottish Government can't borrow to fund new spending um, or uh, tax policy changes, uh, such as to address the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, the same is true uh, for Wales. Um, you can't borrow to say, well, I, I, need to, I need to do more, I need to spend more, I need to uh, reduce the tax burden. Borrowing isn't allowed for that, for that reason. Um, I think what that means is that the devolved governments are really quite reliant or very reliant on funding from the UK government in order to be able to fund additional policy measures. Um, so the tax holidays and cash grants are the business rate system, extra funding for health and social care they need to wait to find out how much money is coming to them from the UK government before they can decide um, what to spend or what they can afford to spend themselves. Um, and if there's not good communication by the UK government in advance of some announcements, the devolved governments could then find themselves having to play catch up, you know, once they know how much funding they'll receive as a result of those announcements. If they don't find out until everyone else does, they can't start, you know, the, the full set of planning until, until they've actually been told. And I think that kind of you know, really risks un, you know, uncertainty for the residents of the, the devolved nations and even delays to implementation of policies sometimes. And it could also have, obviously have political ramifications for the devolved governments. If they seem to be doing things later, you know, oh, UK government's announcing stuff, why is it taking longer for our governments to do that? But if that's part of the, the fiscal framework, you know, it's, 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 it's a risk that's sort of outside of the devolved government's control. They're getting political flack for something they can't really have much control about. Um, so I think that, you know, whilst there are good elements of, of the fiscal framework, some of the lack of flexibility in the framework is, is a problem at the moment. And I think it's worth considering, actually, at least temporarily, should there be more flexibility put into the borrowing side? Uh, at least temporarily, is the Barnet formula always the best way to allocate additional funding? Um, although, we might talk about that later, there's, there's good reasons to change that as well although that's not so popular in Scotland. Um, but yes, I think there's a, you know, there's a chance to look at, you know, given the crisis, is, is the framework fit for, for purpose at a time like, time like this? Uh, and I'm not sure it, it necessarily is. Yeah, thanks, David. And, you know, the risk you pointed out of the UK government announcing measures where, where then the devolved governments have to play catch up, bore out exactly around the UK budget where you know, the Scottish government, for example, um, obviously only found out the business rates measures at the same time as everyone else. And therefore, they had to work very quickly to announce sort of equivalent or what they saw as equivalent measures in Scotland. And so that that, that risk is very much being borne out during this crisis. Um, you, you mentioned the flexibilities that are um, available um, in the fiscal framework. I think in the first few years of operation in Scotland anyway, it's been shown that perhaps the flexibilities aren't sufficient to deal with the risk that the budget bears in normal times, never mind um, a time such as this when you might need additional funding for a crisis situation. But just turning back to David Iser now, um, the Scottish government and other commentators in Scotland have called for extra flexibilities, as David sort of um, alluded to there. Um, what's your view of what's been asked for in Scotland? Um, sort of how feasible that might be um, and how, you know, how that might be arranged between the Scottish and UK governments? 
Um, well, the, the Scottish Government would certainly um, like additional flexibility. Obviously, the, the, the position that they're in is that they, they, they can't, um, having set their budget in February, they can't increase spending over and above any additional consequentials they get from the UK government. So as David Phillips says, they can't you know, borrow to fund discretionary uh, spending. They would certainly like the, the option to be able to do that. And I think there's probably um, a, a case for that. Um, um, I, I mean, I think certainly I, I would agree with, with um, what uh, David Phillips was saying as well in terms of, uh, and what you were saying, Mary, that the, um, the existing ability to manage forecast error, we already knew that that was inadequate. And I think there's a strong likelihood that, that, that this crisis is going to sort of really push that um, issue. Um, and, and I don't think it's controversial to say that the Scottish Government will, will need an ex extension sooner or later, an extension in its ability to, to borrow, to manage forecast error, or to draw down additional reserves from the, the Scotland uh, Reserve, um, which in fact is not much more, the, the existing Scotland Reserve, which uh, enables the Scottish Government to draw down 250 million in any given year, is actually not much more generous than the budget exchange mechanism that existed before the days of tax devolution um, th that was in place to sort of help the Scottish Government uh, manage underspends across years and so on. So definitely the, the, the tools on the managing forecast error are, are very limited. Don't think that's controversial. Um, and this is going to sort of, this issue is going to, the COVID-19 crisis will, will reinforce that. I think the Scottish Government will uh, make the case for uh, additional flexibilities in terms of you know the, the spending needs I mean that's a tricky one for the Scottish government what they've basically said is um, well we'll we'll wait and see if it turns out that Scotland has higher spending needs as a result of this crisis than England does um, we might make the case at that point for some additional funding out with uh, Barnet formula but they have to be very careful there because what they don't want to do, as David Phillips says, is, is kind of risk opening up a debate about the Barnet formula more generally as a way of allocating uh, the block grant, because the, the Barnet formula is recognised as being relatively generous to Scotland, and the Scottish Government wouldn't want to undermine that with, with, with getting too much into debates about needs-based funding. So they need to tread carefully there. Yes, absolutely. And, and I think we're going to probably come back to discussing that a bit more. Um, it just turned into uh, Gitto then uh, in terms of the additional flexibilities um, that the Welsh Government have been calling for as well, and perhaps flexibilities to transfer capital to resource as well as additional borrowing. How much is that going to be a feature of what's presented over the next couple of weeks, do you think? And from what you've been hearing, um, you know, how, how likely, how well do you think the negotiation between the Welsh and UK governments is going to go on these flexibilities? I think, yeah, there's some specific flexibilities that I think are probably quite realistic and quite achievable in terms of getting the Treasury to agree to. So, so the access to the reserves, again, the access to the Wales Reserve, the Welsh Government is already drawing down the maximum amount for this year um, allowed under the current fiscal framework. Um, it seems like a weird year to be restricting access to reserves um, that the Welsh Government has built up. So I think that might allow sort of £155 million of extra spending for the Welsh Government. Um, yeah, so maybe switching between capital and, and revenue again is another flexibility that's being asked for. Um, in terms of the borrowing, I think the, the Welsh Government achieved slightly higher levels of borrowing relative to sort of devolved forecast and relative to the size of its budget compared to the to the Scottish Government. I think one of the weaknesses in, way, in the way that they were sort of agreed was the fact that they were sort of set in stone um, at the time of the negotiations and they were very particular to the circumstances of the time. So for instance, the, so, so the Scottish Fiscal Framework Agreement was, was made under, I think, George Osborne's time as, as, and his fiscal rules, which is substantially different uh, to, the, to today's fiscal rules. You know, there's been a, a massive change in, in, the, in the context of government borrowing in general. Um, so yeah, so I definitely think that um, that maybe that's a, a particular weakness in the fact that these borrowing limits don't re really respond to sort of ch changing circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. 
so just thinking about the flexibilities that exist um, and the, the different risks that the budgets are exposed to and the plans that the, the governments have been making. We've touched on this briefly already, but um, David, Isa, turning to you first, um, to, to what extent would you say that the, the policy response has diverged in Scotland from, from what's been done in England? Um, you know, in terms of the, either the, the way that the lockdown's been put in place or um, the measures to support businesses and individuals through the crisis? Um, well, in terms of the allocation of the additional funding, that, that 3.6 billion, that's broadly followed the same pattern of the UK government. So um, the Scottish government committed to pass on uh, health and social care consequentials to the health and social care sector in Scotland. It agreed to pass on local government associated consequentials to the local government in Scotland. It agreed to pass on business related consequentials to the business sector. So you end up in a situation where, you know, of that 3.6 billion, the, the majority of it is going on um, non-domestic rates reliefs and grants to businesses, um, around 600 million to health and social care, 350 or so to transport and 350 or so uh, to um, local government, various things to support vulnerable groups and charities and that sort of thing. Um, so in broad terms, it hasn't diverged um, very significantly. Uh, there have been some things at the margins that are different. So I think there are some you know, slight differences in terms of the non-domestic uh, rates reliefs. Um, the Scottish government's case is that it's um, uh, providing slightly more generous reliefs to businesses who aren't in the um, retail and hospitality sector at the cost of slightly less generous reliefs to businesses who aren't uh, who, sorry, who are in that sector but have multiple properties. Um, the Scottish Government's done some extra things around um, social care, um, uh, pay, pay, pay in the social care sector, um, and something on um, the self-employed. I mean, you could say that these are all sort of at, at the margins and the, the policy response broadly has been similar. Um, it's interesting to, to, to reflect on why that is. And there was... There's certainly been, there was certainly a case early on where the Scottish Government at times appeared to be trying to set out a stall for doing something slightly more different. Um, but, but in most cases, what, what tended to happen is that those groups, those businesses who felt that they were being disadvantaged by the Scottish Government response relative to the response in England tended to make a lot of noise um, and, and the Scottish Government kind of ended up um, rowing back more closely to the to the UK government um, position. So it, it, it does sort of raise the point that it's quite, politically it seems quite difficult for the Scottish government to do things differently unless it has a very strong case for doing so. And of course the trouble in this, in this situation was policy responses are having to be designed so quickly that actually the ability to make a strong case to say actually the need in Scotland is slightly different is, is quite limited as well. Yes absolutely and it has been interesting to see how the, the policy responses started off further apart and then have converged as you say as um, various organisations or parts of the business community have put pressure on the government to make available support that's available for them in England. Just turning to Ed now, has, has the experience been similar um, in Wales, that generally the pattern has been very similar? And have you had the same experience where groups that feel that they've been disadvantaged relative to England have made noise and therefore the government has moved to kind of plug those gaps? Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's politically difficult to diverge very significantly from, from that being uh, from the policies in England. I think most of the uh, the business rate relief scheme has, has gone straight in through the consequential. The one exception being um, that the Welsh Government has not extended that relief to businesses with a rateable value of 500,000. Uh, there's actually quite a small number of businesses in that category, um, with big retail stores, that type of thing. But those, as you'd expect, there's been quite a lot of uh, political pressure applied from those businesses. Um, particularly since they're suffering um, from the general economic downturn. So there's, that, is, that has been certainly an aspect of the political debate. There hasn't so far been 
a shift in Welsh government policy in in face of that pressure. But in general, yeah, there's 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 pretty limited room for for, for large variations in how these schemes are being applied. I think. I just wondered if if um, you had any reflections on perhaps the impact that um, differential responses to the kind of the way that the government has described the lockdown and applied the guidance in the different countries. Obviously, um, one can debate, um, and uh, scientists who deal in public health can debate what the right response is in terms of the nature of the lockdown and the severity of it, and the restrictions on movement and so on. But um, I think from a, certainly from a Scottish perspective, there's no doubt that it's been slightly different in terms of the focus on staying at home, um, Obviously, we're hearing from the First Minister in Scotland later this week about potential lifting of restrictions in Scotland. But I just wondered if you had any reflections on the, the different way that the different parts of the UK might come out of lockdown and what impact that might have on the economies. And I suppose, ultimately, the budgets that are available to the governments in future years. Um, so, um, Ed, did you have any reflections on that first from a Welsh perspective? Yeah, I think here the political context is obviously really important. I think of all of the political leaders, um, Mark Drayford probably has the biggest incentive for there to be what's called a four nations approach. He doesn't have a huge incentive of breaking away from um, other parts of the UK. And as there's been divergence um, between England and the, and the rest of the UK, he's uh, kind of tacked the horses, if you like, towards the Scottish approach, this stay home approach. And I think this past weekend, there's been you know, the, the, the pictures of the, the, the different beaches in England versus in, in Wales are kind of illustrative of, of that, that different approach. I think um, the, in terms of the, the, the long term, I think there's an issue here about um, how much funding is going to be made, made available through Barnet Consequentials once some of these schemes start uh, ramping back again. And it's, there's, a, there's a, a real question about how much the Welsh Government in particular can afford to, to, to plough its own furrow on, 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 um, um, on these kind of different, the extension of these schemes without a lot more flexibilities being built into the budget on things like the Wales Reserve and on things like being able to borrow for capital uh, for uh, for revenue spending, um, so I think that that's a real open question. I think so far um, th these this is one area where there has been emerging divergences. And David Eiser, I just wondered if you had the sort of same uh, any reflections on the same question for Scotland in terms of the impact that the differential guidance might have. I, I think this is now this is a real this becomes. Um, a real risk for the Scottish government in budgetary terms potentially because they um, there's clearly that the, as you say that the guidance has been slightly different in Scotland there's been sort of stricter interpretation of, of restrictions for say the construction sector um, and now Scotland appears to be uh, taking a slightly more cautious approach to lifting the restrictions and in the context of um, relying on devolved revenues to fund part of its budget that could have um, budgetary implications down the line if um, an implication of that is that um, Scottish income tax revenues or Scottish revenues for land and buildings transactions tax grow relatively less or, or, or fall more than they do in the in the UK as a whole because that differential is then a risk that according to the uh, uh, fiscal framework should be borne uh, by the Scottish budget. Um, so, so that is one of the ways in which such a differential might arise in due course. I do think that if there was, um, it, it would certainly be an interesting political debate to be had if, you know, in a couple of years time, we find out that Scottish income tax revenues have underperformed our UK income tax revenues, partly as a result of, uh, a different guidance about the lockdown and the extent to which the governments would debate about the um, merits of a sort of slightly um, bespoke, if you like, interpretation of the fiscal framework. Again, sort of recognizing this, the, the, the very unusual nature of the health crisis 
and the, the four nations approach that Ed mentioned and what does it mean in the context of this situation where the Scottish budget bears the risk of differential income tax performance relative to the rest of the UK but has to make these decisions about the, the lockdown on the, on the basis of, of what's happening on the health side of things. If I can come in there as well, um, I think actually it's quite interesting kind of seeing these different responses in terms of ending or, you know, kind of easing the lockdown. And I think you can kind of, if you try to kind of think, well, what could be driving those different responses? I think there are, you know, three potential things. One is it could be related to the public health situation on the ground. So um, it could be that there are differences in trajectories of COVID-19 cases. And it, I, I think there is some evidence that they have come down a bit more quickly in England than they have in Scotland and Wales. So that could be one factor. It, it could be that the, the governments are just taking different decisions on the trade-offs between different objectives, between um, further quelling um, COVID-19 cases versus mitigating the social, economic and health impacts of lockdown. And, and third, I think actually thinking about the fiscal framework, on the one hand, they're sort of as discussed earlier, sort of some insulation from the economic effects because of the way the block grants work, because of the way the delay works, you know, with the income tax coming through. So in the short to medium term, actually, you know, the devolved governments get less of a hit to their, to their funding, their revenues from extending the lockdown. It's the UK government that needs to go to the markets to borrow money, to pay for the furlough scheme, to pay for the universal credit. Actually, VAT, where if you saw VAT revenues were negative in April, um, for the first time because of refunds being paid. So I, part of me wonders, is some of this actually, because in the short term, the sort of imperative to kind of get things moving is a, it's a little bit less um, on the fiscal side for the devolved governments. But of course, in the longer term, they hit that, that borrowing constraint. The UK government in future can still borrow, even if borrowing becomes more expensive or more, more difficult, it can still borrow. So I think there is this really tricky trade-off, you know, and tricky set of incentives. You know, in the short term, yes, you can see why, you know, you're not so immediately worried about the falling income, but in the longer term, you know, come, I think, I think the kind of year for Scotland is 23, 24, when the kind of block grant adjustments get made, you know, to outturns, um, that's when this could really hit the budget, actually. So I think short versus, versus medium to long term, there's, there's some differences uh, in how the fiscal framework could be affecting the decision making. Um. I think that's really interesting and fair to um, reflect on the, the different um, incentives that might exist for um, the governments given the, um, the areas of the responsibility and as you see the insulation of the devolved governments from UK-wide um, economic shocks. I think that's really interesting. Perhaps we can come back to that um, when we're thinking about what, what this crisis might mean for the future of, of uh, devolution and the operation of the fiscal frameworks. But um, David Phillips, coming back to you, in terms of the policy responses on the kind of funding side, so the, the way that the devolved governments have passed on, um, in the main, the money in a similar way to this being done in England, um, do you think that that reflects the constraints around the fiscal framework, the, the sort of political um, pressure that's been put upon the governments, as we've discussed? Um, or do you think it just reflects that the needs aren't that different between the different parts of the UK in this, in this current crisis? So I think we have seen some differences. I think actually in, is it, there's been a big difference in Wales rather than Scotland in terms of how the funding has been passed on. So I think Wales has gone quite a bit further on the business side. So uh, in addition to the, you know, the, the grants linked to um, business rates, there's been quite a substantial grant scheme uh, based on um, staff numbers. Um, so I think in Wales, we have seen, you know, more of an emphasis on the business support side than perhaps in England, partly through reallocating money that was already put down for other areas of the budget and reallocating EU money. So I think, um, you know, perhaps surprisingly, the differences between... Um, Wales and England, um, and you know, they're, they're larger than between Scotland and England, which is not what you tend to expect, and probably not what you'd expect given the sort of you know political pressures coming from the media and from civil society, because you know Welsh politics is still much much more integrated with English politics, and the, the political trends in Wales have been much more similar to those in England uh, than they they have been in Scotland. In Scotland, it's really been the Scottish government that sort of you know seen the 
rallied to the flag effect in the crisis. At least initially, you saw the Tories benefiting quite a lot in Wales um, uh, politically. Um, so I find that quite interesting. Um, the fact that it's, it's, it's the country you wouldn't expect that is, is probably actually diverged, diverged the most here. Um, you know, overall, though, there still are fairly similar uh, policy measures. Um, look, I think, I, I think clearly the key issues are, you know, business support, um, health and social care, and local government. Those are the kind of three big issues in, in each of the countries when it comes to kind of the, the, the need for additional uh, funding. We've seen that in, um, in, in each country. Um, I think, you know, clearly the system of funding, um, you know, via the Barnet formula, which gives each country a, basically a population share, isn't, you know, in principle sort of well aligned with, you know, what potential needs could be. But I think it, 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 it has been the case that sort of the, the, the errors are sort of balanced out in a sort of happy coincidence. So to give a case in point, um, the business rate support. Um, now, there are more properties in Scotland and Wales that are in um, uh, the hospitality sector. So the hospitality, retail, et cetera, sector makes up a bigger share of the properties in Scotland and Wales. There are also more properties that are low value that are entitled to grants in Scotland and Wales. So the, the schemes for, for grants and given the, the bigger proportion of um, businesses in these sectors, that will push up the cost. But rateable values are lower in Scotland and Wales. Properties are worth less in Scotland and Wales. And therefore the cost of the reliefs, you know, given, for a given property, the cost of the reliefs tend to be smaller. And having talked to some um, people, it seems those effects are roughly balanced out. Um, so whilst the system is not really well designed to kind of, you know, support, you know, the, the potentially different needs of the different countries, we've almost got lucky, you know, because of these things are balanced out, it, it looks like the system hasn't performed as, as, as badly as it could have in these circumstances. Um, so a bit of a long rambling answer there, I'm sorry, but, um, you know, I think, I think politics has played a role, but, you know, not the simple role you'd expect given Wales has done you know, done more different than, in, than Scotland has. And I think that, you know, the, the funding system could have acted as a constraint, but, you know, through a, through a happy coincidence, you know, at least the needs-based funding hasn't, you know, acted in that way. I think the biggest constraint has been on timing, where we have seen things delayed, especially at the start. You know, it took, it took quite a lot longer for the Welsh government, um, perhaps the Scottish government as well, to come up with its business um, support measures. Partly because I think the initial announcements from the UK government were actually confused on what the numbers were saying. Um, so I think that's been where the real concern has been on the timing, you know, rather than actually on the policy measures that could be put in place. But I think we kind of got lucky with that. If the epidemic had been much worse in Wales or much worse in Scotland, or, um, you know, other factors have been different, that's when we would have seen the, 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 the sort of the, the flaws in the, the system that are actually really impacting. Okay, yeah, well, I don't think anyone would, <laughs> would blame you for having a long rambling answer when we're talking about the Barnett formula. But um, given we said we were going to cover this, um, just thinking about the longer term, um, and given some of the stuff that the IFS have put out on this, David, um, you know, what, what implications do you think this crisis um, and the sort of things that have been highlighted by it might have for the distribution of the ball spending more generally and the way that particular public services are funded? Well, I think if you, you kind of look to the future about what this might mean for, for public service spending for, for, for the tax system uh, and other things, um, I, think, I think it's, to me at least, it seems very unlikely we'll go through a, a, a round of austerity in the same way as you kind of went through post-2010 uh, to bring the public finances back into order. I think politically, um, it would be a, a sort of a, a non-starter to do another swinging round of, 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 of cuts, especially because the areas that got cut back last time have, have been cut back, you know, often 20, 30, 40% already. I can't see the appetite for further cutbacks to courts and um, the police and, and local government services. And then, you know, clearly there's, you know, uh, 
I think I think it's it's quite clear there'll be kind of political pressure to actually increase investment in in things like social care uh, and health care. I think social care will rise further up the agenda. More people will have experienced, you know, kind of the the sort of difficulties in access in social care related to kind of often the quite stringent needs requirements now. Um, I think pay for social care workers and health workers will rise up up the agenda. We've seen in Wales, for example, kind of a, a bonus for health, uh, social care workers announced. Uh, so it's a one-off bonus, but I think there'll be kind of pressure to put up pay there. There'll be a desire for bigger stockpiles, um, and perhaps you know even more significantly for um, you know costs. It's not as much as stockpiling, but I think you know greater slack in the healthcare system. You know greater sort of surge capacity to deal with these things. Um, I think those areas will all be you know putting upwards pressure on spending. That'll be kind of increasing the kind of costs for devolved governments. But if that's happening at the UK level, funding will be coming through. The Barnett formula um, for that. I think the kind of question is, you know, would there be enough funding through the Barnett formula for that, given it's only a population share? And you know, for example, Wales in particular has an older, sicker, um, poorer population. Um, Wales gets actually an uplift on its Barnett share of five percent, which would go some way to address that. But um, will that be enough? Um, the one area I think there could be a cutback in spending um, is actually the the big increases in investment for spending. That was being planned by the UK government. The UK government was planning, I think, to increase investment spending by about 1% of GDP, about £20 billion a year. Um, I think there's a question about whether that will be feasible now. Um, feasible both in terms of, you know, uh, in the short term, actually, is it feasible to, to, to do this spending, you know, with all the, you know, some ongoing restrictions in place. Secondly, if you're looking to kind of short the public finances it's much easier to cut stuff you haven't spent or haven't allocated yet than it is to to cut spending on on things that are that are day to day so i, I think looking ahead i wouldn't expect austerity on the kind of same on the same type we had previously but neither would i expect this investment splurge this i think this le i think the leveling up agenda could could suffer a little bit on the capital side and i think we can expect to pay more taxes um you know the 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 treasury have been you know putting under the chancellor's nose you know options around you know VAT and and uh, property tax if you listen to the Telegraph uh, for example so that's that's what I'd expect looking looking ahead um, what that means for the devolved fiscal frameworks I don't know I think it'd be interesting to have a bit more of a chat about can we see that changing for the long term I could see some short term changes there but I. I think the politics really complicates the long-term um, prospects of getting significant changes to the fiscal frameworks. Thanks, David. And you've touched on a number of issues there, um, which will impact maybe wider societal changes in terms of the view of social care and how it's funded, um, and what the implications have been over the last few years of, of you know, significant cuts to local government funding and how that's sort of um, affected the response to, to the crisis. Um, but thinking, I guess, about about the the implications for the distribution of devolved spending, but also the debate about what powers should be devolved and how the fiscal framework operates in the longer term. If we could just come to Gitto first, what are your views from a Welsh perspective on how the crisis might sort of bear out in the long term for for Welsh funding and the fiscal framework? I think maybe one thing that we'd be keeping an eye out on um, maybe this year immediately is is the fact that or over the next couple of years especially, is that this massive increase in, in public spending and, and unconsequentials, it gives you a sort of an extreme case of, of the so-called Barnet squeeze, the, the effect of a population share being transferred to the devolved budget, being a smaller percentage share compared to the increase in England. Um, and that matters in Wales because in built in the fiscal framework agreement, David mentioned that the fact that there was a 105% uplift. So any increments added to the Welsh budget gets multiplied by 5% just to stop that convergence um, in funding from happening. Um, the level of, of relative needs um, for Wales that they referenced in, in that agreement was 115%. And after a transitional period, um, the agreement states that when we reach 115% of um, spending per person relative to England, that increment added to the Welsh budget gets increased to 115%. Now, at the time when, when the, it was published in 2016, 
we thought that that might take, given the way that the relative, uh, the demographics, the relative population growth, and the fact that spending wasn't increasing very quickly, we thought that that might take decades. Now, we've already seen sort of an increase in spending over the last few years. This, you add up another sort of three billion pounds on top of, of the budget. And it's quite hard to, to know where we are in terms of relative funding, but say that we start from 119% of the relative spending in England, adding in the consequentials of COVID related funding and you get down to 116%. So you're quite close to 115% of the relative spending in England. Sorry, I'm going on a bit about this, but um, it, in terms of that might mean that the Welsh government reaches, well, relative spending levels in Wales reaches 115%, which means that that triggers the, what the clause in the, in the fiscal framework agreement that would mean that the Welsh government gets 115%. So you essentially, move away from the Barnett formula quite substantially then. Um, and the Welsh Government would, for every pound spent, extra pound spent in England, the Welsh Government would get an extra 15 pence um, in the pound. So that, um, I think that has implications in terms of the longer term trend in, in the Welsh Government budget. We might see, so after we reach 115%, we might get a divergence in terms of spending levels increasing in Wales uh, over above the rate in England. And that might have implications for Scotland, Northern Ireland, who might look at this sort of arrangement and the fact that one part of the, of the country is now getting substantially more funding through the Barnet formula than, than they are. So that might have interesting implications in, in Scotland, Northern Ireland too. Yes, absolutely. And just, just turning to Ed now, I, I guess it'd be interesting to know also your reflections on the impacts this might have on the way that funding's distributed um, and the view of the kind of the sets of powers that have been devolved to Wales and the way that they've been devolved through the fiscal framework um, you know what the impacts of the crisis might be on that and the long-term view of, of, of I guess how much this allows the Welsh government for example to, to pursue their own fiscal strategy and the flexibilities it gives them. Yeah, and I think that the key here is it's going to be very long term, right? And so, the, so far, there's been this kind of response to the health emergency, the public health emergency. Um, but the longer, the longer term issue here is going to be the exposure on the economic side. And certainly Wales is, is pretty exposed on the manufacturing side relative to the rest of the UK. We've already seen some companies uh, raising significant concerns about their potential viability in the future. Um, and so those types of of, of, of potential imbalances are going to be really important um, and, the, and the Welsh Government is going to have to have flexibility either on the borrowing side or on shifting money into support schemes you know this the, 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 this is going to be a long-term issue that is going to have to be uh, agreed really with the, with the Treasury um, I, I mean the, the, the debate up until uh, the Covid crisis in Wales was about what to do about social care uh, we've got a, a Senate election now. We, we have the Welsh Parliament, Senate Cymru, now not the Assembly. Uh, there's a Senate election next year, and that was clearly ge gearing up to be one of the big questions. We now have the tax, uh, income tax varying powers, that kind of halfway house powers that existed in Scotland for one year uh, before your the, the fuller set of powers that Scotland has. And so clearly there was parties, uh, Plaid Cymru, the Conservatives in Wales were going to probably make. Uh, quite radical proposals uh, in that regard so i think that there's a lot um, a lot here that um, that is that is that is taking shape and and making this quite an interesting uh, time uh, i think the uh, right the, the powers question is in, in abeyance right now with the constitutional questions on that um, but uh, there have been you know uh, talk about potentially moving to the scottish model with uh, thresholds uh, uh, varying powers but right now that's that's an abeyance as you could expect yeah, thanks, Ed. And, and turning to David Iser now, on from the Scottish perspective, um, what's your view on how the current crisis might impact on the way that funding is distributed, and the view of the package of powers that has been sort of devolved to the Scottish government and the fiscal framework? You know, how how might the crisis impact um, the future view of of what should be devolved and how it should be devolved? Um, well, I think, I mean, um, Gitto talked about the sort of Barnet squeeze in, in Wales, and that theoretically is relevant in Scotland too, although the, the sort of more immediate um, uh, risk and pressure in Scotland is the way that the uh, so-called block grant adjustments work and the risks that they expose the Scottish budget to through, through the devolved tax powers. And I think 
um, there's a question there about I mean, basically what, what happens over the next couple of years and if what happens over the next couple of years is that um, Scotland's devolved tax bases grow relatively more slowly than they do in the rest of the UK and there and therefore the Scottish budget is less well off than it would have been without these powers. If that's combined with a sense in Scotland that some of those effects have come about not because of anything within the control of the Scottish government, but by you know external factors that might include, for example, what happens to the offshore sector and the way that disproportionately impacts the Scottish economy, you know, structural effects like that. That, that, that basically aren't within the sort of direct capacity of the Scottish Government to manage, then there, there, there probably will be some, some discussions about how the balance of risks is managed in the fiscal framework. So I think, I think it's, it's that that's the immediate issue that's likely to, to, to raise itself as the immediate issue in Scotland rather than a question about um, Barnet formula and Barnet squeeze. Um, in terms of the, the the, the debate about powers. Um, I mean, I, I, I agree with with Ed that I think it's you know that there's a question about capacity at the moment. Clearly, um, before this crisis, um, the 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 SNP in its manifesto last year actually was was making the case for devolution of national insurance. Um, and in fact, since the crisis, it's uh, it's reiterated its position that its 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 position is for, for to aim for fiscal, what it calls full fiscal autonomy. Um, but you know, there's clearly there's clearly a big question about capacity for both governments in taking the, that those discussions forward. And of course, what Scotland uh, has is still faced with is 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 implementing the rest of the powers that were set out in the in the Scotland Act 2016. So um, this in principle, we're still aiming to assign VAT revenues to Scotland. There's still some work to do to operationalize that. And of course, a real big challenge is um, operation, operationalizing the delivery of the new Scottish social security powers between now and 2024-25. So you know, taking those two things together, you, you'd, you'd, you'd have thought that uh, the, the question of which powers are we going to devolve is, is going to be uh, you know, slightly on the back burner, at least over the next couple of years, and so we work through some of these issues about actually the operation of the fiscal framework and um, implementing the, the, the existing uh, fiscal powers, but some of that will depend on you know these questions of the UK government's fiscal stance. Does it or doesn't it? The extent to which it is seen to be doing austerity light, um, and the extent to which it's seen to be making the investments in health and in social care that the Scottish government will will argue for, um, and the extent to which uh, it's it, it isn't, and therefore the Scottish government feels it. it can make a case for further powers on that basis. Thanks, David. Um, just finally, then, um, going to David Phillips, um, thinking, reflecting on what um, uh, Gitto, David, and Ed have said. Um, what's your view on how? I guess if, if we reflect on the last few years of fiscal devolution and opera operationalization of it, if that's a word, um, and then how the um, fiscal frameworks have been sort of tested through this um, current period. Um, what's your reflection on, on sort of how the packages of powers have been devolved, the fiscal frameworks have been put in place, um, and how the pandemic might um, change the, the view of, of that in the future? I, I think my, my view is that the sort of the, the pandemic will end up reinforcing existing narratives in the countries um in part i think due to sort of you know the, the political incentives that already exist to to sort of promote those narratives um so i think the scottish government will almost certainly um you know take from the crisis you know that it's it's cause for the powers over borrowing tax welfare you know even more important now um it, there'll be sort of a narrative that it, it could have done more it could have done better it had more powers um, that its ability to respond has been constrained by the existing rules and powers. Um, 
I think the Welsh government will make in in some cases, you know, similar ideas about you know it, it should have more borrowing powers. But I think you know the the story there will continue to be around arguments for solidarity and redistribution across the union. Um, and there'll still be a continued weariness about going too far with fiscal devolution in, in Wales. I think because it's seen as you know potentially unraveling, you know, the redistribution, which um, uh, Wales for sure, even Scotland, uh, benefits uh, quite significantly from on a sort of you know a, a fiscal calculus you know uh, basis. Um, I think in terms of you know the the, the sort of debate about. Barnet formula and um, the borrowing powers. I think you know you shouldn't rush to make big changes in a crisis. You shouldn't you know make changes that are needed now and, and extend those permanently. So, for example, I think it, it would make sense to think about bypassing the Barnet formula sometimes. You know, for particular measures. You know, if if they're certainly if it's the case that COVID nineteen is you know more entrenched in one country than in another in future. Thinking about you know is the Barnet form of the best or should we kind of allocate funding differently thinking about some temporary increases in in, in borrowing powers uh, makes sense i i wouldn't rush into rush into making those permanent changes without thinking thinking about the system um and i i guess i guess i think that the the part the, the, the sort of politics that that underlies um these uh these frameworks it won't have changed fundamentally, I think, in in my view. I mean, I think if you look at the Scottish fiscal framework, um, I think at the time the fiscal framework was agreed, it was seen as a great victory to some extent for Scotland. The Scottish government had got the block grant adjustment mechanism that it wanted. It had gotten this what's called index per capita. It protected Scotland against population risk and it protected it from its higher, you know, its, its, its lower tax capacity. Seen as a great victory for Scotland. Actually, I'm not sure that that is true. I think the UK government played a pretty good game in its negotiations and, and give the Scot it held out a long time on giving the Scottish government that preferred method for the block grant. And in doing so, it managed to get pretty constrained borrowing powers for Scotland. And I think the reason it did that was political. I think the UK government is scared that a Scottish government that is pro-independence would use its borrowing powers to borrow significant amounts of money to uh, effectively, you know, do nice things for Scotland. It would invest more in roads and rail and hospitals and spend more money and make an argument that, look, you know, with even these limited additional powers, we can do all this great stuff for Scotland. You know, um, look what we can do with independence. I think that is something the UK government fears, that additional powers could sort of be, be used as part of the sort of constitutional debate. I think it'll be just as scared about that after this crisis. And I think it will therefore resist making big changes to the, the rules on borrowing in particular going forwards. Um, whether that's, you know, right or wrong, I think depends, you know, to some extent on your position of whether it's right or wrong for the Scottish government to sort of make that kind of case uh, for independence using, using the kind of, you know, the borrowing powers that it would have in the, in the short term. But um, yes, I guess I, I, I see... I see, um, I see there being some scope for changes in the short term to kind of like, you know, cope with the crisis. I think it will certainly up the ante on the debates going forwards, but I think, I think the, UK, the, the chances of the UK government changing its position significantly on these things, I guess I see is, is, is fairly limited given the, the high political stakes. Um, and those, those political stakes, you know, I think could still be there. We've seen a, a new poll, I think, out today about um, Scotland, the uh, the opinions on the on the handling of the crisis, and you know Nicola Sturgeon comes out smelling very much of roses. You know, eighty percent um, approval rating compared to you know disapproval for the UK government's uh, measures in Scotland. So I think that kind of the, the the politics around Scottish independence will still, if you like, haunt the fiscal framework Scotland enjoys in the union as well. Okay, <laughs> thanks David, that's a nice note to finish on. <laughs> um, so um, yeah, we covered a lot in, in this uh, this version of the, this uh, episode of the podcast and um, I think there's quite a few things that um, we'll probably pick up in future editions in more detail, um, particularly as we see how the, the budgets of the, evolved, uh, the devolved governments evolved throughout, uh, throughout the year to, to cope with the, the crisis. 
So I'd just like to thank um, Ed and Gitto, David and David, for joining me today um, for this edition of the Fraser of Allender podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts through all major, major streaming platforms and can keep up with our latest analysis of the Scottish and UK economies at fraseroflander.org. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again soon for another edition of the Fraser of Allender podcast.